All aboard the MBIT podcast with Seamus Madan. The year is 2008. Hussein Faisal just quit his job to co-found AdParlor, which built marketing campaigns to run on Facebook. He didn't know if it would work, but he decided to give it a shot. He later sold the company in 2011, stayed on as CEO for a few years, and then in 2016, he launched Snap Travel, a discount hotel reservation service which has saved customers over $153 million. But unlike most companies, for their first 100 customers, Hussein didn't write a single line of code. Today, he joins to share his journey as an entrepreneur and how he even got the famous basketball player Steph Curry to back his company. Now rebranded as Super.com, Hussein, thank you for taking the time to join the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Awesome. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining. So I want to first start off, super.com, that's a pretty short and seems like an expensive domain. I don't know if you're allowed to share it today, but how much did that cost? Well, what a good, what a way to start the interview. So, so we actually can't share the exact figure, but what I can tell you is that it was, it was in the seven figure mark and it was an interesting decision that we made. So we taking a little bit of a step back. When we started the company, it was called Snap Travel, actually, and it was just about booking hotels. We then started to expand into other areas. We kind of did this like temporary rename called it Snap Commerce. But when we had a bigger idea and picture of what we wanted to do, which was to build this larger savings and earning super app across multiple areas, we wanted to do a full rebrand. So, you know, we had a great CMO on board. We had a great agency on board. And as we started to go through this, we, we decided to rename the company and we really liked the name Super. So Super was just a fantastic name. It was very short and memorable. It was the way our customers feel. Like they feel super when they save a ton of money in a hotel. They feel super when they can use their pay card and build their credit score. But picking such a generic name like Super without the .com just felt like something was missing. It felt like, who are we to be calling ourselves super if we don't even own the .com? So we went about this process to go in and purchase that URL. It was, we had to actually bring on a, a broker to help us track it down and, and negotiate it. So it was, it was pretty expensive, but we think it's definitely worth it. It's memorable, it's a call to action. And, and a lot of times people have the same reaction you have, which is like, wow, super.com, that's awesome. Yeah, I knew it was expensive because when I went to GoDaddy and I went to estimate the domain price, it's like, this is too high of a price to actually estimate. I'm like, okay, yeah, that must be pricey. But uh, let's get into your journey as an entrepreneur. You know, why become an entrepreneur? You started Ad Parlor, which built marketing campaigns to run on Facebook. And you have a background in consumer science from the University of Waterloo, which is where your co-founder is from. Why not stick with your job as a software developer at Bell? What attracted you to start your own company? Yeah. Okay. So I'll tell, I'll tell you my story. First of all, growing up and going through university, I always thought I was just going to be an engineer. And I think that's an important point because a lot of people, as they're going through school, like they don't really know what they want to do or they think, you know, they're kind of undecided. And, and for me, I was like, I want to be an engineer. I'm going to be an engineer. I'm going to be like a Microsoft engineer, which at the time was like the equivalent of being a Google engineer or whatever the latest and greatest is now to be an engineer at. But I just kind of didn't enjoy it that much. And, and the biggest reason I didn't is because I was at a big company and I just wasn't making that much impact, right? So I'd go in every day and I'd write some code and I'd do some stuff. 
And then, you know, half the time or more than half the time, whatever code I wrote probably wouldn't even make it live to production. It wouldn't even make it to a consumer. I'd spent three months working on, you know, some font size and color on a specific website and it just never really went anywhere. So it just wasn't fun and it wasn't impactful. And then on the side and my evenings and weekends, I started to build Facebook desktop games. So this is when like Farmville and Mafia Wars were like really hot and I started to build some games. And then obviously when you're a first time entrepreneur, you're like, wait, how do I make money? Right? So the obvious thing was, oh, let me start showing ads on my games. And we, and, and I saw that there wasn't really a great like Facebook ad network. So that's, that's how it kind of all started. And, and my co-founder at the time, his name was Christops. He was actually an intern at Bell and he also was building Facebook games. And we said, let's come together and build this network of games that can sort of drive ad revenue and sort of share traffic. So that, that's sort of my story. It was kind of out of, wasn't really too happy in my other job at Bell because it was a big company, started building Facebook games on the side. And then went to, hey, how can I make money off my games? And, and that's how it kick-started. And what I realized very shortly into it, even just like a few weeks into it or a couple of months into it, was that this is way more fun than working at a big company, right? This is really exciting. We're doing stuff. Every time, like every bit of work that you do, you get to do like direct results into something you own in your building. And that kind of allowed me to eventually you know, quit my job at Bell and decide to be an entrepreneur full-time. Yeah, I feel like that's a lot of why people get into entrepreneurship because it's really cool to see something that you built from ground zero out into the world. You know, I've gotten some advice throughout the past few months as I've been exploring the startup space that says that people have told me, including like the COO of Rippling, he's like, hey, if you get into startups or after you go to college, instead of working for a big company, you should work at a high growth startup just to know what product market fit looks like and get that experience. What made you decide to choose building your own company instead of joining a high growth startup already? So to me, it just kind of naturally happened. Like I said, I was, I was on the side evenings and weekends building Facebook games and then it started to get traction. So I figured, hey, may as well, may as well just go for it, right? Uh, I don't know that I had the, the great advice that you received uh, <laughs> along my journey. Otherwise, maybe I would have done that right after I had graduated from school. You're right. I probably would have picked like a high growth um, startup uh, of, over a big company. But I just kind of, you know, followed the path of, you know, went to Waterloo, did a couple of co-op terms or internships. And then one of the places I did an internship, which was Bell, offered me a job, so I took it. And, you know, I, I just kind of followed that path. But yeah, when I started to be an entrepreneur and I started to do the stuff on my own, I just really, really loved it and naturally just wanted to do more and more and more of it. So that's how I ended up in that path. But but you're right. I, I, I do think there's a lot of value in joining a high growth startup over jumping into a big company after you graduate. One of the big topics that comes up with entrepreneurship is this topic of risk. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts about this. But, you know, some people will think that entrepreneurship is very high risk and the best entrepreneurs are actually, in reality, very risk averse. That's at least what Mike Salguero, who founded ButcherBox, has told me. As a multiple time or a serial founder, how do you approach risk? Yeah, so I, I've been very fortunate. When I started my first company, I was still really young. I was still living like with my parents. So there wasn't really much risk for me. It was 
you know, I'm giving up my big company salary, but, you know, in the worst case, if this startup doesn't work out, I can always go back to a big company and be an engineer. So, so fortunately, and, and I realize I'm, I, when I say that, I'm speaking from a big position of privilege and I appreciate the opportunity I was given in the circumstances I was in. But, but to me, there just wasn't that much risk, right? What kind of, if I go a little bit deeper in it, what, what kind of, bothers me a bit is a lot of other people who are in my situation or a similar situation, uh, but yet they don't take the leap for whatever reason. And they're like, oh, it's just too risky. Oh, I'm unsure. I don't know if I have the right co-founder. I'm not sure if this is the best idea. And I would say, you just got to go for it. You got to think about what's the worst case scenario. And obviously, again, for some people, they do have dependencies and they have you know things that they need to do and, and family to take care of. But if you're in a position, especially as a younger entrepreneur, where you take a step back and you're like, hey, the worst case scenario is I forgo a salary for six, eight, 12 months and I can probably get another job or you know, I'll still be okay and I'll have a roof under my head. You got to go make the leap and you got to make the jump and stop making excuses. I agree with you on that. The other thing, though, that can get into people's brains is not just the direct impact or the direct negative impact on them, but also maybe what people think of them after maybe they leave their big job at Google. What would you say to those people? Yeah, that's a, that's a very real thing, right? So the way I, I generally advise entrepreneurs to do it is – First of all, you shouldn't care what people think, but that's, I know that's a whole other topic. But if you do, what I generally tell people is that you don't need to like blast your social media or tell all your family and friends or update your LinkedIn profile on what you're doing. You can always start doing things on the side and start building things and start getting customers and start growing the business until you feel confident or happy that, hey, this is a real thing and this is what I want to do and this is where I want to spend my time, then you can go and do it, right? A lot of people feel like if they become an entrepreneur, they have to like update their LinkedIn and tell all their friends and give a big like life update. You don't need to do that, right? You can just go and start go and start hustling and starting to build things. Maybe this is a good segue into how we started Snap Travel. Because when we started that company my co-founder, Henry and I, so this is a, a sort of a new co-founder. My, my co-founder from Ad Parler, he kind of semi-retired and, and started to do his own thing. And, and I, met, I met Henry, which is, which is a whole other story. But we knew we liked each other. We knew we wanted to work together. We knew we wanted to start a business together. And we just started doing stuff. We, there was this book called Running Lean by Moria, which kind of gives you you know, how to test business ideas, how to build business ideas. The very basic concept is if you have a B2C idea, you like build a website and you drive traffic to it and you see what people do. If you have a B2B idea, you just start talking to customers and seeing, you know, what their problems are and how you can help solve it. We didn't announce to everybody that we started this company. We didn't like update our LinkedIn to say, this is the name of our company and this is what we're doing. We just started doing stuff. And we actually iterated on business ideas probably every two to three weeks uh, as we were just trying different things and trying to see how the market worked. With Snap Travel, what we ended up doing is hypothesizing that people wanted a travel agent over messaging. So we just started, we built a simple website and we would drive, buy some ads and drive traffic to it. People would come in, they would say, I want a hotel. And Henry and I would you know, pick up our cell phones and manually respond to people and say, yeah, I got a great hotel deal for you. And, we'd, you know, we'd go look it up on the web and, you know, we'd book the hotel for them. And and that's how we started. We made our first 100 hotel bookings without actually even really 
telling anyone what we were doing. Uh, and when we saw that there was traction and there was something real over there, that's when we started to sort of rebrand and, and change the name. So all in all, to say that there's a lot that you can do and a lot of things you can test and learn without having to announce it to the world. You know, when you got your first 100 users by hand and without having to write a single line of code, I feel like a lot of founders today hyper-obsess over getting the product exactly right before releasing it. What is the importance of actually getting the distribution down maybe a little bit before the product? I absolutely love that question. So the most important thing and the thing we talk about all the time when I advise entrepreneurs as we try and build new products within our company is not product market fit, it's product market model channel fit. So if you go and you Google PMMC fit for those who are listening, that is a mega key concept. Because what you'll see is that there's a lot of great, pretty products that have product market fit that probably fill some need that's essential but they either don't have the business model or they don't have the distribution channel in order to make that product grow. And if you don't have the channel to grow, then it kind of doesn't matter. Like you may have a great product that a few people really like, but you're never really going to be able to scale it up and get the business at scale. So we always look at PMMC fit, product market model channel fit before just thinking about product market fit. Way too many founders spend too much time obsessing over product. Yes, product is important. Yes, product can drive retention. Yes, it can do a whole bunch of great things for you. And it's important that you work on product, but you can have a great product and you can even have product market fit, but it doesn't really matter if you don't have the model and the channel as well. For this company, you've actually raised over $100 million in VC money. The first company you did, you bootstrapped it. And how do you think raising money changed your mindset as a founder? Yeah, that, that's a good question. So the first company, which was completely bootstrapped, a lot of entrepreneurs, myself included, who haven't raised money, they, they sort of are like, oh, yeah, I didn't raise money because I didn't want to. The reality was I, I couldn't raise money. I tried. Right. And, and I wasn't able to and I was unsuccessful. Now, I probably didn't do the best job. I probably weren't, wasn't talking to the right people. I probably didn't have the right deck. There's a whole bunch of reasons why I wasn't able to raise money. Um, but I didn't raise money. And what that meant is that every single time I wanted to hire someone, every single time I wanted to sort of start to spend money on a particular project or whatever it was, I had to sort of scratch and claw and make the revenue and make the profit to be able to afford that. So what happened was it was a very slow growth phase and growth stage because we'd go in, we'd have to like make enough money to hire someone and then like you know, wait for another two, three months to make enough money to hire someone else. This time around, we've actually raised uh, over 150 million from, from VCs, uh, up to 200 if you include uh, some of the extra uh, access to capital we have. It just allows us to invest faster and more aggressively uh, in where we know there's going to be success. So there's certain areas that take a very long time to build, and it takes a lot of money to build. And we are confident that it's going to be something that's you know going to long term be a big part of the business and drive revenue and be profitable. But without the VC dollars, you just can't do that, right? So as an example, one of the things we built into Super.com is the pay card. So the pay card is effectively a card that 
allows a customer who typically couldn't get access to a credit card, a MasterCard. And, and what it does is they can start to use the money they already have. But the way it works, is it allows them to earn rich rewards and it allows them to build their credit score with their everyday spend. Now, building that out took a lot of time. It took, you know, almost a year to get the product right the way we wanted it to work. And imagine you were completely bootstrapped. It'd be a lot harder to go and do that. But with, with the fundraising, we're able to go and do that. And with supportive investors, it can really help you accelerate your product development. What do you think you did differently this time when you're raising money compared to last time that made it much more successful? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say there's a there's a couple of things. One is the traction. So, you know, off the bat we had a lot of a lot of great traction. But if I think about it, I would say even in, in the first business at Ad Parlor, we also had some good traction. So that's probably not it. I would say it's probably the relationships that we have. So, you know, everyone everyone talks about, you know, the deck and everyone talks about sort of the traction, which is obviously very important and you need that in the vision and the story. But every round I've raised has been on the back or on the basis of some type of relationship that I've had. So when we did the seed round, our two biggest investors were Lightbank and B Partners. Lightbank were the ex Groupon guys. And at Ad Parlor, that uh, Groupon was one of our largest advertisers. Uh, and B Partners, uh, my co founder Henry had a long relationship with uh, the partner over there, Garrett Goldberg. Uh, when we did our next round, which was Inovia, which is about $8 million, I knew one of the partners there, Karim Deep, for, for many years because we went to Waterloo together, and he brought me into the firm. Uh, a round later, we did with Telstra Ventures. Yash was actually on the Corp Dev team at AdKnowledge that acquired AdParlor, so I knew him for several years. Uh, and you kind of keep going down this path. And I would say the relationships were probably the key differentiator. Obviously... You know, I'm, I'm a much more experienced entrepreneur. I have a better network. I was able to tell the story better. I was able to, to get traction better, all of that stuff. But really, it came down to the relationships that I had that allowed me to raise much easier this time around. For founders that are starting out without much of a network, how could they build those relationships from scratch? Yeah, it's it's really hard. It's, it's you know, it's not easy. You got to put yourself out there. You got to sort of Start with the people who you do know. I imagine, and not every entrepreneur, obviously, but I imagine a lot of entrepreneurs have gone through some type of college or university. You know, reach out to the people around you, see what they're doing, what they're up to. If you see anyone who's an entrepreneur or a VC or an investor, start to just have conversations with them. And that's how you start to build relationships. It is very difficult when you're young to, to, to do that when you're early on in your career. But I'd encourage you to just, you know, keep asking around and connecting to people and, and trying to make these things happen. But it, do, it does take time. I mean, even for the show, we've had to send hundreds of emails out to a lot of different prospective guests. And I think, yeah, it takes a lot of time, a lot of research. But in the end, I think it is very much well worth it. You mentioned at a conference in the past that your target customer is an underserved demographic, mainly because even for some of the small purchases like booking like a $40, $50 hotel, they would use a debit card instead of a credit card. Why is it an underserved demographic and why did you choose to go after it? So when we started the company, as mentioned, it was just about helping people save money on hotels, right? So we were able to uh, get access to discounted hotel pricing and provide it to our customers. 
when we took a bit of a step back and we really looked at the customers and looked at the data, we saw that they were booking two-star, two-and-a-half-star, three-star hotels. We saw they were paying with a debit card. Um, and when you go deeper and you talk to them, and this is qualitative and quantitative research, you'll see they're typically lower income, lower FICO score. And when we saw this and we started to talk to our customers more and more, we started to really feel the pain. We started to feel areas and understand areas in which we could help them. And what we saw is that they didn't just need to save on hotels. They need to save across everything they buy. We saw that they were paying with a debit card, not by choice, but because they didn't have access to credit. We saw that they wanted to and needed to save money on essentials like gas and groceries. So that's what sort of led us to this bigger vision and this bigger pivot of how can we help our customers grow? Now, the common North American thing to do would be, oh, I'm doing really well in hotels. I'm going to go expand into flights and tickets and tours and activities and car rentals. Or I'm doing really well in hotels in the U.S. I'm going to go and take this and internationalize and do hotels in every other market. We took more of an approach that you'll see more uh, Eastern companies or Asian companies do, which is we're doing really well in a particular area. How can we understand our customers deeper and how can we offer more things to that existing customer base and that existing customer set? So seeing that it was an underserved demographic, this lower income, lower FICO score, and, and you ask why the underserved, well, you know, a lot of companies ignore them. They say, wait, this is not the most profitable customer. This is not, you know, the sort of platinum customer. So we're, we're you know, we're not going to build services for them and, and structurally, like, we're not incentivized or we can't build services for them. Whereas A, we want to make bigger impact and this is a customer we want to serve. And B, it's also a very big opportunity. When we talk about sort of lower income, lower FICO score, depending on how you categorize it, you're talking about, you know, over a hundred million Americans who fit into that uh, category. When we also talk about lower income, um, they also don't have a lot of money to spend. How'd you, you know, convince investors that, just because they don't have a lot of money to spend, this is actually a quite a big uh, addressable market. Yeah, I mean, I think it came from the traction, right? So as we've been going through uh, each one of these funding rounds, it's always been built on the basis of the growth and the revenue growth and the traction that we've had. So we talked briefly about fundraising. And one of the things which makes fundraising a lot easier, of course, I talked about the relationships being important, but it's having the growth in the metrics to back it up. So we're at a point now where we are, you know, well over a hundred million in net revenue, you know, and that and that's a lot of revenue for a company that serves that demographic. And the reality is that we're kind of just getting started. So if you look at, you know, where we're at and, and sort of where the travel business can go, where the pay business can go, where the overall saving super app can go. We're just getting started and there's a lot more potential to grow. So on an individual basis, you may have a customer who has less to spend, but it's a massive demographic and, and they do spend money, but they're often spending it less efficiently than they could be or should be. And we want to help to rectify that. Yeah, you know, speaking of the hotel market, for example, you know a lot of people might not realize this, but there's actually a big duopoly with Booking.com and Expedia, which I think they each did like a hundred plus billion dollars in sales total. How do you enter such a competitive market and gain market share in that market? Yeah, that that's a really good question. And you're right, Expedia and Booking.com are two of the very large and dominant forces. When we started the business the focus was around being able to get the best price to our customers. And ultimately, if you're a consumer, 
and you are trying to book a hotel, if you can find a better price, then that's the service you're going to use, right? So the, the analogy I like to give is if you booked with Expedia eight times in a row and the ninth time you find a better price on booking.com, who are you going to book with? You're going to book booking with booking.com. Com. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because you're like, hey, that's like the same hotel, but I can get a better price. That's who I'm going to go with. So that was sort of our wedge in, into the market. The president of Hotwire is actually now our GM of travel. His name's Clem Basin. So he knows a thing or two about, you know, getting access to to discounted hotel rates. And I do want to say that it ends up being a win-win-win, right? So it's not just getting the lowest price for the customer. It's also about helping the hotel with yield management. It's about helping sort of the supplier be able to sort of distribute some of the inventory they may have pre-purchased. So it is a win-win-win because you have a lot of hotels, especially in the U.S., that go empty. You know, you have 30 to 40% of hotel rooms that go empty every single night, and they want to fill up those hotel rooms. They just can't necessarily do it at full price. So they look for ways to be able to distribute inventory at lower rates. So all that to be said, you know, being able to access the best price really allows us to put our wedge, uh, to wedge ourselves into that market in what would otherwise be a very competitive space. The other thing about like um, super apps or apps that can do all in one things is sometimes they do everything okay and not everything really great. How do you do like multiple things, the hotels, um, the cars, everything uh, really well? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And I think the reality is we don't do everything really well. The reality is that you need to do things really well in two or more areas. So the best example I can think of is Uber. Now, like I think at some point Uber and Uber Eats are going to consolidate into one app. You probably know within the Uber app, you can already order Eats and, yep. and sort of vice versa. So if you consider that all one app, they do two things really, really well. They do Uber, which is rides, and they do Eats, which is getting food. Now, what most people don't know, or maybe they do know, is that they also offer flowers and alcohol delivery and groceries and package delivery and a whole bunch of other things. So they do Uber really well. They do Uber Eats really, really well. Um, they have an Uber One membership, which kind of covers those two things plus more. And then all the other things are sort of ancillary services, which is sort of additional revenue, additional services, additional value to get people to use the app. But you can't expect a customer to come in and use like all of these services, right? Most customers will only use one, maybe two, and ideally three or more. So we do travel really well. We do a really good job of being able to get the best rate in front of the customer. Um, our pay card is extremely innovative. It's a patent pending card that allows our customers to build their credit score and earn cash back with their everyday spend. Those two things we do really well. Uh, the other services, sort of helping to save money on gas or on groceries or on pharma or even earning money on surveys, those are things that right now are ancillary services. And maybe over time, as we think about the bigger vision, if some of these really start to take off and we really see the customer demand, that's when we'd go and like double down and say, okay, we want this to also be done really, really well, right? So the way to think about it is that for the services, your core services that you do really well, you would want that to stand on its own two legs, right? Like Uber can stand on its own two legs. It can People would download the app just for rides. It has its own user acquisition channel. It has its own PMMC fit. 
Uber Eats is the same case, right? Like people will download it just for Eats, just to order food. It has its own acquisition channels. It has its own PMMC fit and that as well. And it, the Uber app just happens to bring those two things together. And the Uber One subscription happens to bring those two things together. That's kind of how I think about our business. Which again, you know, people will download the app just for travel and they'll book 10, 20, 30 hotels and maybe not do anything else. Some people will download the app just for the pay card to build their credit score and earn cash back. And then some people will come in and do both. And some people will come in and use the ancillary services as well. You mentioned super cash. What is probably the biggest reason some of your customers don't have available access to credit? Yeah, there's a lot of reasons why that happens. Sometimes they're, you know, they've come to this country and they're new and they just haven't been able to build their credit. Uh, sometimes they make a mistake. They, they miss a, they miss a bill payment. Um, and now their credit score is in the gutter and it's really hard to recover from that. Um, or sometimes it's just life circumstances, right? So you're in a position where, you know, you're working diligently, you're making, you know, you're making your paychecks, you're paying your bills, but you're sort of living paycheck to paycheck and then something happens, right? There's an emergency at home or there's a medical emergency uh, and you have no choice but to, you know, what do I do now? Do I pay my credit card bill or do I put food on the table? And you kind of have to choose to put food on the table and then you end up in that position. So, you know, there's a large part of America that lives paycheck to paycheck and, you know, they are sort of one mistake or not even a mistake, an unfortunate incident or an un- you know, something that happens outside of their control from being in a position where their credit score is ruined. And, and in this country, credit score means a lot, right? It means more than just getting a credit card. It can mean you're paying more for insurance. It can mean you're paying more for your phone bill. It could mean, you know, even your ability to get a job can be affected um, by your credit score. So sometimes it's, you know, you're, it's, you're in a tough position um, and you end up, and you end up in a spot where, you know, you don't have the credit score that you want and, and we're hopefully with this pay card allowing customers to, to rebuild their credit. And for those who have had like a negative experience with credit and credit cards in the past, how do you convince customers to use your credit card and your platform? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. The way the card works is we we do our best to ensure that the customer is going to be able to you know build their credit score in a responsible way, and we try and make it as risk free as possible. So when they are making a purchase, primarily we're basing it against some of the money that they already have and then being able to sort of secure that and then pay it off at the end of the month. So it really is almost like automatic. We, we sometimes talk about it as, you know, building your credit score without even trying. So, so putting the guardrails in place and being clear about what it is and how the program works is a way in which we try and build trust in the program. And, you know, we talked about raising money a little bit earlier. You've mentioned you've raised well over 150, closer to $200 million. Steph Curry is actually one of your investors who you previously have never met before. He invested in your new startup. How did that come to fruition? Yeah, I love that story. And and that's a question I always get. So when we did a Series B round, Telstra Ventures actually led that round. It was, again, off of a relationship I had, Yash Patel, who's a a friend and an investor. And in that process, as they were getting close to closing that round, one of the things he said was, hey, you know, as part of selling Telstra and saying, hey, you should take my money, is, you know, we're going to introduce you to Steph Curry or, or at that time his fund SC30. And I thought, I was like, yeah, sure. Like I didn't know if that was real or not. I didn't know if he was going to invest or not. But I said, okay, sure. 
So he introduced me to Brian Barr, who is Steph's manager. And once I met him, it was kind of just like any other investor I would meet. So, you know, did the presentation, did the pitch, answered some questions, shared some due diligence material, did some follow-up questions. And I probably met with Brian or exchanged emails with him over the period of two, three, four weeks. Um, and then at the end, when Telstra decided to lead the round, Brian's an SC30, more like, okay, we're, we're coming in as well. Now, what was interesting is in that pitch process, I actually never met Steph. Brian obviously was talking to Steph in, in, in the background and making sure he was excited about the investment, but, but that's how he came in. So it was kind of like, not this like crazy dramatic story. It was kind of just like normal, like you meet an investor, they make an introduction and you go through the regular investor process. But what was really exciting is what happened after the investment. So after the investment, Steph really, really leaned in. So he he came to our office and did a sort of Q&A in front of the entire company. We went on stage together at TechCrunch Disrupt. We spent a weekend together in Napa along with other companies he's invested in, other sort of sponsorship and um, philanthropic companies who he works with. That time when we were Snap Travel, he actually wore a Snap Travel hat uh, to the NBA Finals with the Warriors versus the Raptors walking into the stadium and, and during the post game conference. So he's done a ton of stuff for the company, which has been really, really amazing and fun and exciting. Uh, I'm a huge basketball fan. I'm also obviously an entrepreneur. So to bring those two things together and bring you know basketball and entrepreneurship together, it's, it's sort of probably one of one of one of my happiest I would say accomplishments when I when I look back at things. You, you mentioned salaries and stuff like that. Currently, the super team has over 200 employees. Now, we've talked a lot on the importance of company culture for success. You know, your entire company, I believe, is mostly remote. How do you engage with your employees to build a culture with the entire company basically dispersed all over the world? Yeah, it, it's hard, right? It's not easy. And it's one of those things where... If we're honest, there's going to be some hit you take to company culture by being fully remote. So you're not going to have the same culture that you're going to have when you're fully in person. So you kind of first have to understand that and realize that. And then what you need to try and do is try and build culture in the ways that you can, right? So we do that through our values. So, you know, some of our values, as an example, my favorite value is open and transparent. So anyone has access to anything. Uh, anyone can talk to me. Anyone can set up a meeting with me. Anyone can see all our financials, can see our bank balance, can do all of that. So it's like you create this like open and transparent culture. One of our core values is sort of moving fast with intention and, and sort of being able to like get things done quickly. Uh, one of our core values is being an owner, right? So you get to like whatever it is that you're working on, you own that. So, I mean, you can, you can kind of go look up our six core company values, but so that's one way. And then secondly, we do get together in person, uh, but it's just not on the, on the every day. So we get together as a company, we get together as department, we get together as leaders. Um, we also create budgets. So department leaders have budgets, uh, locations have budgets, uh, and people can get together as they sort of please. We, I would say we typically end up getting together in somewhat larger groups, uh, at least like two, three, four times a year. So your day-to-day -day is going to be remote, uh, but you will get together in person and build culture in that way. Um, I want to just go on a little tangent now that you talk about uh, building culture and getting people together. One of the things yep. we did last year 
is we took about 200 people, pretty much the entire company, anyone who could make it to Las Vegas for uh, four days. And, and, you know, people think that and they're like, oh, wow, that's amazing. That must have been so much fun. And it was. And it was amazing. And we built a ton of culture and we got to know each other. But one of the things we also did on that trip is we did a customer empathy exercise. So we talked about our customer being an underserved customer, where we have a lot of employees who don't necessarily relate to that customer. So what we ended up doing is we took these 200 employees, we broke them off into small groups, we gave everybody a physical check. It would be, uh, you know, like a, a check for like, let's say 200 bucks. We would then send them to cash checking stores, and they would physically walk in, cash a check, feel the pain that a lot of Americans do, which is, you know, the only way to get my money is to take my check into the into the cashier and sort of get charged an exorbitant service fee. Then take that money, go to Walmart, try and buy groceries for the week, and then sort of come back to the, the hotel and talk about that. So we spent almost a full day doing that customer empathy exercise. And, and I want to bring that up, A, because it touches on culture and like, you know, doing a team building activities together. But two, it touches on understanding our customer. And everything we've done at super.com has been about understanding our customer and building what they want and what they need. Uh, and that, I think, has been one of the key drivers of our success. And if people are going to take away two things uh, from this podcast, one, I would say really understand your customer and build for what your customer need is. And then two, which is a point you brought up earlier, which is it's not just about product market fit. It's about PMMC fit, product market model channel fit. And make sure that whatever you're building, you have a large distribution channel that works for the product that you're building. A lot of times on this podcast, we talk about, you know, talking to your customer and understanding your customer. How do you truly ask the right questions to fully understand your customer and their pain points to build a better product for them? Yeah, we do a whole bunch of different stuff. And it's not as simple as like, asking the right question. A lot of times it's combining multiple methods of research, right? So one of the methods is asking the right question and that can come in the form of surveys, that can come in the form of actual interviews, uh, but there's other things that you can do, right? So one of the things you can do, for example, is you can listen in on customer service calls and like hear their pain and understand really what they're going through. Uh, when you're asking questions, don't just ask people, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how much do you want these things? Ask them to stack rank it and be like, here are 10 things. Why don't you stack rank what's most important to you, right? Uh, so you can actually see what's most important versus everyone being like, oh, yeah, 10, I want that. Oh, yeah, 10, I want that, right? Go and see that. Go and look at the data. Like, you know, it would have been hard to sort of get to the place we got to with the pay card had we not looked at the data and seen that at one point 60 to 70 percent of our customers were paying with a debit card right now that we have the pay card uh and we are sort of connected into our customers financial lives and, and are able to um connect to their bank account you can kind of see where they're spending money and where else they could save money on right so um doing these things like looking at the data being thoughtful and tactical about how you ask questions, listening to customer service calls. These are all things you can do beyond just, you know, going to a customer and saying, hey, what do you want me to build? And, you know, before we wrap it up here, while being a founder, you were also a mentor at 500 Startups for well over a decade. What do you think is the number one reason why entrepreneurs fail? 
That's a great question. I think the number one reason is people who are just not driven and resourceful enough. So one of the hardest things about being an entrepreneur is you have to break through walls and you have to keep pushing through things and you have to be extremely resourceful and just like figuring things out with the limited money, capital, people, resources you have available to you, right? Like most entrepreneurs who I meet, they've already passed the baseline of like, are you smart enough, right? And you just have to go and like power through and keep powering through, right? It's very easy to get discouraged and just to be able, just to be like, oh, hey, this is not working out or, or this is not going to work anymore. You know, what are you going to do if you're a, you know, resourceful and sort of determined entrepreneurs? You're going to go figure it out, right? If you hit a roadblock, you're either going to break through that brick wall and you're going to break through that roadblock or you're going to sort of pit and turn and avoid that roadblock and sort of go around it, right? Um, when we started this company, we pivoted many times. Even my last company pivoted many, many times. And people think that's a bad thing, but it's not, right? You know, going way back to my first company, I started at Parlor. It was a display ad network on Facebook desktop games. Well, guess what happened? About six months into it, Facebook kind of blocked all you know, ads from Facebook desktop games. And guess what? About six months later, they kind of, Facebook desktop games kind of died, right? But in between time, we kind of saw that writing on the wall coming and we pivoted and we started working with our gaming advertisers to advertise directly on Facebook in the right-hand column. And then, you know, then Facebook said, oh, we're going to introduce mobile and we're going to reduce the number of desktop tiles. And there's like all these things that happen and all these roadblocks that happen. So you as an entrepreneur need to be able to either break through that wall or pivot around it and be resourceful enough to do it. There's a lot of entrepreneurs who just kind of like give up or they can't, they can't see through that wall or around that wall. Yeah, that just comes back to the topic of being resilient and also being aware as a founder, right? So, you know, asking those mm -hmm. questions, being able to get through those difficult times can all be really important for long-term success. But as we wrap it up here, what would be your takeaways for the next generation of entrepreneurs listening? Well, I, I'm, I'm really excited for this next generation of entrepreneurs. I don't think there's a better time to be an entrepreneur, but the amount of you know, resources we have with the amount of infrastructure we have, it's just incredible how fast you can build a business. You know, back in the day, and I'm talking, you know, 10, 15 years ago, if you want to start a business or a website, you had to like buy servers and set them up and do a whole bunch of stuff to get going. Uh, and then, you know, AWS came along and you were able to just get rid of that entire infrastructure layer. Then it was like, okay, how do I build a website? I need to hire a developer. Well, now all these website tools came out and you can build a website. And, you know, it's it's like advancing more and more and faster and faster. Obviously with AI now, you know, you can do almost anything very, very fast with very little resources. So I think there's no better time to be an entrepreneur. I think that everyone should sort of like, if they want to be an entrepreneur, they should take a little bit of a step back and say, hey, what's the worst case scenario if this doesn't work out and they should just go for it. My my number one advice actually which I give first first time entrepreneurs who are very new is like just go and do something. The amount of people I've talked to who want to just keep talking about their idea as opposed to actually executing on their idea, it's you're always going to you can always convince yourself not to do something. You can always convince yourself that oh there's too much competition or this is not a great idea or this is not a great model or now is not the right time or I want to get more experience first. 
Just go and do something. Go and do it. You'll learn along the way. You'll pivot. You'll learn. You'll learn way more from trying to execute on something than talking about something and just putting it on a on an email or in a business plan. Yeah, totally agree. And you know, even with the whole server thing, when we interviewed the former president of Microsoft, Bob Muglia, the other week, he had to build eleven servers in his basement before even AWS was even around. So I think there's a huge opportunity for founders nowadays. Well, first off, it's great to have you on the show today, Hussein. It's been a pleasure to have you on. We'll have a link down to super.com in the episode description down below. Although you could just look up super.com wherever you want. And thanks so much for joining. I greatly enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. Thank you, Shannon. Really appreciate it.